You are listening to National Security Law Today. Hey, listeners, and welcome back to National Security Law Today. Before we jump into today's episode, we need your help. National Security Law Today is up for a People's Choice Podcast Award. It's a listener-nominated award show for podcasts you love across a wide range of categories. Our cast is up for the government and organizations and politics and news categories. We'd love your vote. All you have to do is click the People's Choice Podcast Awards link in the description, set up a very quick account, and cast your nominations. By nominating our cast for both categories, you help us reach a broader audience and spotlight the importance of national security law in our changing world. Nominations are open until July 31st. Your voice matters and your nomination makes a big difference to our show. Thank you for your support. Now on to today's episode. As you are likely aware, recent political developments have damaged the intelligence community's reputation and divided the country. Some say that the recent performance of the intelligence community, and particularly the FBI, has battered its reputation for avoiding partisanship. Reports by Robert Mueller, John Durham, and multiple inspectors general suggest that the Trump-Russia investigation was politically motivated. This loss of faith in national security agencies has profound consequences for American democracy. On today's episode, you'll hear from moderator Harvey Rishikoff and guests Stuart Baker, Mary McCord, and Alex Joel as they discuss these issues and, most importantly, what can be done today to restore public trust in our federal law enforcement and intelligence communities. We'll be back next week to continue our series on generative AI and national security concerns surrounding artificial intelligence. Thanks so much for tuning in. Welcome to our webinar from the American Bar Association Standing Committee on Law and National Security. We're happy to have so many of you on the line, but we had a sense that Alex Joel, Stuart Baker, and Mary McCord would draw a crowd. So the reason why the standing committee thought it made sense to do this and to bring such a distinguished panel together, I think most of you listening probably know who the panelists are. Uh, Stuart Baker has had a long career in national security. He serves the general counsel of the National Security Agency. He's been in private practice for a number of years with his firm working on these national security law-related issues. Uh, Mary McCord, it's hard to actually turn on your TV or listen to radio without hearing Mary kind of explaining to America what these sort of difficult legal issues are. A former acting assistant attorney general for the National Security Division at the Department of Justice. Uh, she's now the executive director for the Institute of Constitutional Advocacy and a visiting professor at Georgetown University Law Center. She's been writing extensively in this area and has been trying to help elucidate some of the more complex legal issues that we've been confronting. And finally, but not least, is Alex Joel, who we all know from the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, where he was the Civil Liberties Protections Officer. He's now the Senior Project Director and President and uh, Adjunct Professor at Washington College of Law. He's been conducting research in this area, developing issues, he's been a practitioner. I think we all know him when he led the Office of Civil Liberties Privacy uh, and um, Protection Office, Civil Liberties and U.S. Protection Office. Thank you, Alex. So it's great. Uh, we all know each other. We're all friends. I think we're going to have nonetheless a spirited discussion. I think we're here today because 
as our brochure sort of highlighted as to why we wanted together is that there is a sort of recent, I'd say, sense that the reputations of the intelligence community and the FBI and the Department of Justice are being battered a bit, that there seems to be a sense of uh, partisanship, there have been claims of partisanship, uh, there's been sort of issues concerning the, quote, weaponization, close quote, of legal uh, instruments of our treasured institutions. We've had a variety of reports, the Mueller report, the Durham report, the IG investigations. We have the Intel letter that was signed by 51 members of the IC. We've had debates concerning 702 renewal. And just most recently, we've had some whistleblowers arguing that the recent investigation of Hunter Biden's um, laptop and his relation on tax issues and gun issues uh, were not pr prosecuted at the full vigor of the Department of Justice. There have been responses by the Department of Justice to that issue. So as you can see, we have quite a witch's brew of issues. And really to begin the conversation, um, I would like each of the members of the panel to characterize these events from your perspective. And how do you put these events in context and select the issues you'd want to discuss about it? And we'll kick off the conversation that way. Um, Stuart, can you uh, lead us off, please? Sure. Um, I think the the short version of my view of this is that the intelligence community, to include the FBI, uh, has never been less respected across the board in the United States uh, and more suspected of political um, bias in the way it administers its authorities. Um, it's a what has happened essentially is that uh, the FBI and the intelligence community have lost the trust of everybody uh, on the right half of the spectrum, uh, uh, or at least the 40% uh, um, who uh, uh, considered seriously voting for, for Donald Trump. Um, and you can have a long argument about whether it's really the fault of Donald Trump or not. Uh, and uh, there's a, a perfectly reasonable position that says he broke a lot of norms. Um, but uh, the response of the agencies and the leadership of those agencies uh, to the norm breaking of uh, Donald Trump <clears throat> was to break a lot of norms of their own. Um, a, and you can go back and look at what uh, Jim Clapper or Michael Hayden or Jim Comey uh, uh, or uh, a host of other <coughs> leaders in the uh, community said uh, about Trump. Uh, uh, and, you know, some of them uh, were went beyond just saying, I don't like him, to saying, I think he's working for the Russians. Uh, and John Brennan, uh, former CIA director, said uh, he had information and intelligence he had seen that led him to that suspicion. Um, so the invocation of intelligence authorities there uh, was quite clear, and the effort to say, you can't trust Trump because you should trust me, I think fell at the end of the day on deaf ears. Uh, the FBI had 
many similar problems. Uh, the uh, uh, pursuit of um, uh, 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 Carter Page was uh, a disaster. Uh, so grotesquely negligent in its uh, uh, affidavits uh, seeking a, uh, a warrant as to almost certainly have been motivated by partisan bias, in my view. Uh, and then finally, on top of all of this, in the 2020 election, at a critical point in the election in the last two weeks, uh, the uh, uh, 51 former officials from uh, uh, intelligence agencies uh, intervened in the campaign to say that the Hunter Biden laptop had all the classic earmarks of Russian disinformation, which turned out to be wrong and probably could have been uh, identified as wrong that day if the uh, 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 folks who signed that letter had looked at it seriously. But they did not. They were acting on behalf of the uh, Biden campaign, which needed a talking point that day for a uh, debate that evening. Uh, uh, all of those things were lining up leaders from the intelligence community, from the FBI, on the side that uh, opposed Trump uh, and opposed the Republican Party. Uh, it's not surprising that Republicans feel that uh, there's an institutional bias and that there's been a real loss of trust. I don't say that the, uh, uh, the folks who support Trump are blameless in this, and Trump has certainly seized on this opportunity to build mistrust uh, that because it helps him. But from the intelligence community's point of view, from the FBI's point of view, uh, there's no point in saying, well, we were right. Because um, if you've lost the trust of Americans, you were not right. Uh, the, uh, the leadership of those agencies should have thought long and hard before they went out and decided to engage in a partisan campaign against the president. Uh, somebody should have gotten the signals that there was something wrong with the Carter Page uh, 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 affidavit. Um, and in fact, there were people who said that there was something wrong with it. And the FBI rolled over the uh, deputy assistant AG who was raising those questions. So uh, there have been some serious errors of judgment, if not worse, in the intelligence community. And we need to ask, well, what can we do to persuade Americans that uh, these agencies have learned something from um, the last six or seven years and that it's not, they can get away with it? Thank you, Stuart. So I'll let Mary turn on her microphone. But so Stuart sort of characterizes a norm shattering period with unusual partisanship <coughs> taking place, Mary. As a longtime member of the Department of Justice, what's your sort of reaction to the? Well, issue? I think before I react to Stuart, I want to I want to address your initial question, which is sort of um, how I sort of see the problem, and it it leaves out some of the things that Stuart mentioned, which I'm happy to address. But I think we've got what we have today is two problems that have collided. We have real mistakes made by the intelligence community, and in particular, the FBI, in a number of areas, uh, FISA Title I, 702 U.S. person queries, um, and other things that I'm going to set aside for now, but real mistakes. That's thing one. 
And then you have thing two, which is politicians, I think, capitalizing on those mistakes for their own political purposes by characterizing the mistakes as being politically motivated. And I don't think that's always borne out by the facts. So I think there's no doubt that some um, mistakes, some individuals within the FBI might have political motives on both directions, I would say. The FBI is uh, roundly criticized, not just by Republicans right now, but also by Democrats. And uh, we're we're seeing all kinds of um, uh, allegations that it's, you know, infiltrated by uh, extremists on the right and also infiltrated by extremists on the left. So I think it's uh, it's it's received incoming from both sides. But I think a lot of the mistakes that we've seen, particularly in the um, actual execution and implementation of the FBI's authorities, are based on sloppiness. They're based on not adequately understanding the, the statutory or even constitutional uh, limitations on what they're doing. They're based on inadequate mechanisms for ensuring scrupulous accuracy and adherence to not only statutes and constitutional procedures, but internal uh, guidance, including the attorney's general guidelines and the um, domestic intelligence operation guidelines, the, the, the FBI's own internal guidance. And, and I do think that they're also sometimes blinded by cognitive bias. And I don't mean cognitive bias in the political sense. I mean the cognitive bias that investigators and prosecutors sometimes have toward framing everything uh, in a way that supports their investigation. And that's why I sometimes think of what has happened with the FBI in the last few years as very comparable to the Department of Justice you know, real Brady movement back in 2008 after the botched trial of Senator Stevens, after which it was revealed that um, department prosecutors had failed to disclose to the defense documents that would have assisted the senator in making a defense to the charges against him. Um, that's a Brady violation. And that Brady violation in a case as sensitive and high profile as a case against a United States senator caused a real paradigm shift at the department. I mean, I was there. I was uh, from the department from 1994 until 2017. And um, that in involved all new guidance, really leaning forward in terms of over-disclose, over-disclose, over-disclose. It, in, it involved mandatory yearly training, which to my knowledge is still in effect. But I think more importantly, it involved a real concerted effort to create culture change in the approach to Brady. And that's the kind of thing that I think needs to happen at the Bureau. So pieces of that are things like um, you know, tightening up the procedures for review, and we can talk about reforms later and, you know, issuing new guidance and training and, you know, maybe designating special procedures for sensitive cases, all those kind of things. But those are just, those are just like the band-aids, right? What you have to do is actually create this culture change that we are going to abide by all of the rules, internal guidance, statutes, constitution, and that's just part of our culture. And it's it's what we think of as, you know, as importantly as thinking of what's our predication for an investigation. Um, and, and I can give an example of this. Right. So uh, from, from a prosecutorial uh, point of view, you can have a case where you've got 
four eyewitnesses, three eyewitnesses identify your defendant, the person you are investigating. The fourth doesn't. And they say something about, you know, they think the person looked different, et cetera. It's really easy as a prosecutor to think, I've got three good eyewitnesses. This fourth person is clearly just wrong. They couldn't see clear, right. They're making it up. Their vision was blocked, whatever. And just discard that because it doesn't fit your bias toward your investigation. But under under Brady, under the due process requirements that the Supreme Court has elucidated through Brady and its progeny, you can't do that. You can't just decide and rationalize away this thing that's inconsistent with your theory of the case. You've still got to produce it to the defense. And I think you can imagine similar situations for the FBI when they're either preparing, you know, a FISA warrant, they're getting ready to do a U.S. person query, whatever it is that they're doing, or just opening an investigation, right? Are they are they considering everything versus the things that they think are are just the things that support the outcome that they are driving toward. Um, I don't think that's always politically motivated. I think it can be, but in my experience of almost 25 years at the department, um, always as a career uh, prosecutor, and even when I was in the acting assistant attorney general role, I still was career. And I worked with people uh, at the bureau and in the department for decades, obviously. And I just... I just didn't see political motivation as generally infecting investigative decisions. Um, Doesn't mean it's impossible. I I, I would say, though, that IG reports have have not concluded that some of these recent investigations were politically motivated or that the lapses were politically motivated. Um, And I do think that's where this work of politicians coming in and capitalizing things, creating more polarization, labeling everything as political, uh, has caused a big problem, which is in many ways harder to remedy than the problem I was just in, um, I was just discussing. This is where I think some of Stewart's comments are um, are really relevant because I think the problem of politicizing intelligence community lapses is one that is uh, exacerbated by the breakdown of norms um, and uh, the rule of law. And that includes things, I would say, like uh, the former FBI director, Jim Comey, making his announcement in the summer of 2016 about the end of the Hillary Clinton email investigation and then reopening it in a very public way just days before the election. I may quibble with um, some of the criticisms of former members of the intelligence community with respect to some of their criticisms of Mr. Trump, because I happen to believe Mr. Trump is a national security threat. I think he was when he was president. I think he continues to be a national security threat. And and I think that has really uh, caused people who've devoted their lives to protecting our national security Um to feel very, very strongly. And maybe they don't always make the right decisions, but I don't, but I think they are motivated not by purely politics, but be, but by their deep and abiding concern about protecting our sources and methods and our national security. Great. Thank you, Mary. So uh Alex, you can unmute. And I guess the issue is there's some consensus that there's been norm shattering. I think Mary's raised the issue of a, a cognitive prosecutorial bias and that whether or not we need to have a, a refresh of a culture for the community to be able to feel more comfortable with decisions that are being made. What's your sort of response to this and your take on the original question, Alex? 
Yeah, thanks, Harvey. Um, this is a super interesting discussion, and I appreciate you know hearing what both Stuart and Mary had to say. Um, so as somebody who had been inside the intelligence community for so long in, in the position of a civil liberties, privacy and transparency officer with, you know, working with the Department of Justice to oversee how these authorities are being carried out, I guess I have a couple of reactions. So one is I personally did not witness political bias or partisan motivations when I was in government doing what we were doing. The idea that intelligence community authorities could be used for partisan political purposes was completely anathema to everything I felt that we stood for, right? So we, I think intelligence professionals identify themselves as being objective, nonpartisan, nonpolitical, staying away from politics. Um, and I think that's part of the issue that I'm going to try to get at because I'm, you know, because I think what we're seeing here is this mismatch between how people like me were doing their jobs, how what the tools we have for, you know, making sure that the people who have their hands on the buttons for doing surveillance understand what the rules are and are following the rules. And, you know, that they're not doing it, of course, not doing it for partisan political purposes, but also making sure that they're following these complicated rules. So we have these layers of compliance systems and technical standards and and oversight people like me coming in and looking over their shoulders, um, really trying to make sure that they are following these detailed rules. And, and yes, they're getting them wrong sometimes as we've seen um, uh, recently. And there are systems to capture when they get wrong. But what happens when there's an investigative lead that comes in that has a domestic political implication? Like what is the process there? Um, when you, I just getting ready for this, I refresh my memory on some of the, you know, procedures and policies we have written, and they tend to say very, in a very general way, you know, don't do this for political purposes, right? And certainly that's what we taught, the lessons of the church committee, et cetera, et cetera. And then they have some detailed rules, including at the FBI for sensitive investigative matters, as an example. And what's the fix for that? Or, or for reporting uh, ident the identi identifying information from members of Congress for the experts out here, those are the Gates procedures. So I refreshed my memory on those Gates procedures and on the sensitive investigative matters. And our idea for uh, control is to elevate the authority authorization, right? Which could lead to further distrust if the whole thought is that the, that the system, that, that people in power are using this for political purposes. So I still believe in those controls. I still think they're effective. I didn't see people doing this for partisan political purposes, but given the given the concerns and the and the kinds of um, in the climate that we're in, I do think it's helpful to rethink those. Are those enough? Do we need different institutions, different rules, different ways of thinking about this when there's a domestic political issue that gets involved? Because I I definitely don't think I, I definitely agree that the IC should stay far away from those things. Um, so that's my overall reaction. The other thing I would say is that the IC is uniquely ill-suited and um, to dealing with the current political furor over what's happening, right? They are not, uh, by training or by inclination, uh, the kinds of people, and we don't want them to be these kinds of people, but they just aren't the kinds of people who can effectively present their point of view to the public that they, that they can try to build uh, uh, lines of trust with people who are um, who believe that they are uh, uh, you know doing things for uh, for for uh, purposes that are up to no good. They, I having been on the inside, having done the work on transparency, even the work I was doing on transparency, 
is not really up to the, up to the current challenge, right? Like being more providing another detailed report, I'm not sure is going to move the needle. So, um, um, so I have further thoughts on that, and we can get to it uh, the next round of questions. Sorry. Great. So, um, one of the issues that this conversation has raised, and you know, we've all been sort of focused on, is um, so there are many sort of checks and balances that are built into the system. But the woods, the, the woods procedures, there's a whole range of things that we cause reform to take place. But they didn't seem to take, given what has taken place in the IG report, sort of articulates those sort of failures. So what are the type of reforms that you would all suggest that you think would cause this to be, uh, to use Mary's phrase, a, a new culture of compliance or a culture of concern because of the power that these institutions have, the prosecutors, the bureau, and the IC making judgments. So um, do you want to start, Alex, with the sensitive matters? You would like to see some reforms that you think we need to look at? Yeah, and here I'd like to give credit to Adam Klein, who, a former PCLOG chair who wrote a great piece in Lawfare suggesting, uh, for example, he highlighted the, the fact that the you know, Department of Justice and the Bureau already have special procedures for sensitive investigative matters. And one thing that he suggested that I agree with is that we define those in statute and you know, create um, additional procedures that we feel confident will help address some of the concerns, including special procedures in terms of how the FISA court gets involved. And I do wanna emphasize the role of the FISA court. Um, I think we have an opportunity here to address some of these concerns by making sure that the FISA court is more directly involved. And another, another reform that Adam suggested in that regard was to involve the amicus. As we all know, there's an amicus who can get involved and argue the other side of uh, cases that are brought before the FISA court by the Department of Justice. And I think having uh, the amici con uh, involved in matters that are, you know, fit within the sensitive investigative matters uh, bucket, which include investigations of public uh, elected officials, um, would be helpful. There are also other um, uh, provisions currently in procedures and executive order. Uh, we, we know already that Congress is considering codifying all the changes the FBI has uh, made, uh, and that's good. They should do that. But I think they could also codify other provisions. Um, there's one, there are familiar provisions to those of us in the IC regarding um, First Amendment protections, for example. Um, there are others regarding when you can disseminate information to the White House, um, when you should be unmasking uh, the identity of a US person, what you should you do, what reporting should you give to Congress if, you're, if, if a member of Congress's name appears in an intelligence report, which are the Gates procedures. So I think all of those things should be looked at in terms of getting them uh, in. The other thing I would say is that we should invest in compliance and oversight resources, right? So we should make sure that uh, people with titles like my, like the, the one that I used to have, civil liberties protection officer, that, that there are people at a, at a senior level in each agency who have enough funding and staffing to carry out their emissions uh, appropriately and to look out for these kinds of issues. Um, there are also compliance offices. So FBI created a new internal audit function to look at FISA. Uh, that might be a perfect reform or it might need to get further you know, thought through. Should that be a, a, a bigger compliance function? What kind of public reporting should there be? Um, 
I think there's a number of measures you can take within the executive branch to further beef up and, and strengthen oversight institutions. And I'll go one step further along those lines is that people in those rules should be protected from arbitrary dismissal. So they should have an independence uh, function built into their job description so that they can't be removed um, without cause, uh, which means that they would probably need to be career civil servants rather than political appointees. And I'll stop there. I have other ideas. Great. Um, so I, Mary, I'd like to hear your ideas, but I'll, I'll put more logs on the fire. I'm getting a lot of Q and A's. I'm having, of course, defense counsel who are representing some of the individuals in the IC case 51 contacted us and they're not happy with Stewart's um, characterization of the events, oddly enough, and they want equal time the defense bar. So I think we'll have to have another one of these. Uh, webinars with the fence bar coming on. But one of the issues that, Mary, you can respond to it all is just in the context that many of us, as you know, retain our uh, security clearances after we leave, which gives a certain amount of access to the real world. And should we be rethinking that issue about if you have security clearances, your willingness to participate in political debates or not once you've left, which was sort of part of the 51 as part of the another log on the fire if anyone wants to pick it up. But I leave it to you to which one of these burning embers you'd like to discuss. So that's that's a really interesting um, idea that I haven't spent a lot of time thinking about. I'll tell you, the day I walked out the door, I was read out of every single uh, special access program, every TS, every S. I had to get completely re-upped with all of my clearances when I became a FISA uh, amicus a couple of years ago. And that's because I wasn't going to a place where I could demonstrate that I had a need for those clearances. Now, I realize people at higher levels than me, like the former CIA director and things like that, retain them more regularly because, and I think it makes sense. I think if a, a current president um, or other intelligence community official would want to reach back to that institutional memory of a former, you know, very high level intelligence official, there, there, there would be a need to know in that circumstance, and um, that person should probably retain those clearances. Um, so, I, I so I, I do think there already are limitations. Like I said, I didn't have a, a cause to make when I first left that I needed them, and later when that cause came up because of the appointment to the to the to the FISC as an amicus, then I re-upped my clearances. In terms of, should that then be something that bars someone from making any type of, you know, signing a letter or talking to the press, or I suppose you could even say talking to Congress, although I think we could probably put that in a different category because of their oversight role. Um, you know, I think I need to think more about that because I, I I think that the intelligence community, former intelligence community officials do have important contributions to dialogue about national security and to keep a, you know, and so the question here is, you know, do I think they should refrain from engaging in overtly political activity? Yes. Do I think it's always clear what that line is? I don't think it is always clear because, as I said before, I do think some of what um, we saw with that letter of 51 was a sincerely held belief that this appeared to be a Russian intelligence um, operation. And maybe that was premature. Um, but I think I think that there is um, 
there is at least value to people who have reason to know things to be able to still speak about them and help to educate uh, the public. But but um, but they need to be careful for all the reasons we're sitting here talking about. I want to just quickly mention a couple uh, um, piggyback off of things that Alex said, because I do think these areas of um, of sensitive matters and fisc involvement are two in my opinion, most fruitful areas for reform. But I would say beyond creating sort of a statutory definition of sensitive matter and uh, probably adding some sort of special this scrutiny and amicus participation, if it's a if it's a matter that's going to even go to the FISC for some sort of FISA authority, I think that we need to even think about um, creating a sort of a quasi-independent review, even for just opening investigations, right? Because by the time you're going to the FISC with your Title I or, or whatever it is, you've already opened the investigation, as in the case like of Crossfire Hurricane, right? And so, um, and, and, and so, you know, one possibility, I mean, uh, those of you who are listening today, who were ever at the Department of Justice, you'll be aware of a position in the Deputy Attorney General's office that has always been held by a career department official for decades. It was Dave Margolis. And I think many of us who spent also decades at the department uh, think of that position as the Dave Margolis position. Since then, there have been other, um, the, the incumbent currently, Brad Weinsheimer, is also a many, many decades career DOJ official, never has been a political appointee. He and I go back to our days in the U.S. Attorney's Office together, and I know him very well. And I think to seek the advice of that person who is not on a political appointment and who is there specifically to give the Deputy Attorney General and the Attorney General advice that protects the institution is is really important. And so right now, of course, the person in that position is looped into many sensitive situations, but maybe memorializing that kind of thing, almost creating it like a little bit of a special counsel type of thing. Because um, the same kind of concerns that motivated the Special Counsel Act in addition to the Independent Counsel Act was held unconstitutional, so you had to do something differently. But the concerns of trying to create this independence from the politicals in sensitive investigations, I think makes a lot of sense. And so I think that could also be replicated at the at the FBI, because of course they do a lot of things before it even makes its way over to the department. And I think it was Alex that you said something earlier about Typically, what we've done is just require higher and higher levels of review. But if that higher level of review is by a political appointee, that does very little, I think, to satisfy many of the concerns of people today who just think that the department is overly political. So I would I would think about that kind of thing. And on on the amicus um, being one and doing it on top of like a day job and a bunch of other things, it's it's it can be a big burden. But that panel could be certainly expanded. And um, I do think sensitive matters are ones where uh, it's appropriate to point in an amicus. I think in many of those, they already would have an appointment, but certainly not all of them. Reauthorization or certifications like 702 yearly certifications, those probably warrant an amicus. So I think there are definitely more areas where having that amicus in there argue, pushing the government, pushing the government to answer the hard questions, uh, particularly if a judge maybe is not, uh, is, is worth doing. And sometimes a judge won't think of things if they're not pushed by somebody who's, whose hat is to push the, the government. Thanks, Mary. Uh, um, Stuart, you've been very 
patient, listening to the responses. Um, I know you have some many ideas about how reforms could take place. So I'd like to hear your thoughts. But what a, our old friend Paul Pilar has written that his concern is that uh, as we get closer to the election 2024, and given this sort of distrust we're having concerning the major institutions and their fear of being called political, and the idea that we're pretty sure the Russians will be more than happy to be involved in influencing, I would say, the 2024 election, if that's their practice and pattern. Given the reforms you're suggesting, how will they address this issue that's on the horizon and how people are feeling about the institutions? Over. Sure. Um, okay, I, let me um, roll up to that. I. Uh, because I thought that a lot that I heard from Mary and Alex um, resonated with me. I just think we would we need to take what they're saying um, much more to heart. I, I I completely agree with Alex that the idea of saying you were worried about politicization, so don't worry. We asked a presidential appointee to decide whether this, this was a good idea or not uh, is it's a non-starter. Uh, and so just I, I understand when you're inside why it feels as though elevating this gets more maturity of judgment and more care. And maybe all those things are true, but they're not going to resolve this issue, which is a very real sense of partisan bias. And um, we haven't had to worry about that for 50 years. So it's understandable that people don't quite see it that way. But I do think from now on, we're going to have to think about it all the time. And we're going to have to accept that our good faith as government employees is not enough. Um, and uh, we have to recognize the risk that anything that gives an appearance of political bias is in the long run desperately uh, fatal to uh, the enterprise. So how do we deal with that? I, I think I would pick up on what Alex said. We need a, a person who has the same rank and prestige that Alex had uh, as the chief civil liberties and privacy officer responsible quite bluntly for rooting out partisan behavior inside their agency. They should it, they should be the people who are called on to do an investigation. They should get the complaints from uh, internal staffers uh, who think that there's already some political bias going on. They should do investigations. They should do retroactive uh, IG type uh, reports. Uh, uh, and they need to have staffs that are politically balanced. Uh, they, they, there has to be confidence on the part of both parties that there are people who think like they do inside that office. So that's that's what I would suggest would be one thing that we should do, but we need to, we, we can't just say we're going to have somebody and we're going to tap him. I, I think that this is going to have to be something where it's going to be created by uh, uh, Congress and there's going to be have, have to be some real understandings around how it that office will operate. Um, I, I, I have to say, um, I am not impressed by the performance of the FISA court. It had every opportunity. It had what three, four shots at the Carter Page uh, uh, affidavit uh, at times when there was 
and in other words, the press was covering a revolt over whether Carter Page should be uh, pursued. I don't see any sign in any of the discussions of that case that the FISA court asked question one about the basis of the uh, uh, investigation or the affidavit. So uh, it, it does not look to me as though they are exactly a, a, a strong read to, to be holding on to. Um, to pick up on something I think uh, Mary talked about, um, which is what do we do about former uh, members of the intelligence community who may have a lot to say, valuable stuff to say about how intelligence works, but that we are worried about the way in which at a minimum they're expressing their views is going to lead to a perception of uh, partisan bias. I, I think the easy way to do this is what the Hatch Act already does with a little bit of an extension. The Hatch Act actually says if you're a federal employee, you can participate in a campaign unless you're at the Justice Department or the FBI or the CIA or the National Security Council. They named exactly the agencies that we're most worried about looking politicized and said they may not participate in campaigns. Um, and I, I think I would simply say you take that restriction with you when you leave if you take your clearance with you when you leave. Because when you speak with a clearance, inevitably, there's a certain amount, given your past experience and your current clearance, there's a, a kind of implicit notion that I know something from my uh, uh, clearances that maybe not, not everybody knows. Uh, and uh, when people express support for candidates and participate in the campaign, uh, it leads to a perception that the agency is taking that side in the election. So uh, these are a lot of the people that I criticize now are friends of mine and or were, that were until I spoke. I, and I, I have enormous respect for them. They made a mistake, that's all. Um, and we should prevent future mistakes from being made by uh, building some more constraints into what they do. So those are uh, uh, a quick set of thoughts. Okay. Um, well, Stuart, we'll, everyone on the panel will continue to speak to you no matter what you say. I think <laughs> you feel comfortable with that since we know you well. Some of the questions coming from the audience are, given the new issues concerning social media, public available information, and the fact that these institutions, the IC, the Bureau, DOJ will have access to them. And I put that question in the context of the 702 renewal that is now a hot issue about what to do with information gathered, uh, quote, uh, lawfully using the appropriate jurist uh, authorities. How do you all see how this is gonna factor into going forward with the trust in these institutions as they have access to more and more information and how that information is going to be used for either intelligence or prosecutorial decisions. Um, I think the, the audience, the, the Q&As are, they're very nervous about going forward since these checks are not in place currently that you're recommending how do we feel comfortable that the institution will be, in Alex's phrase, transparent enough 
and the use of these issues to feel comfortable with these extraordinary authorities. I don't know, Alex, if you want to think. Sure. They've been very involved in this. Seven yes. <laughs> very familiar question, right? Very familiar question. So this is, to some degree, we we always feel like we're in a unique point in time. And, you know, there's always some unique aspects to, right, to, to where we are at any given moment. And right now, it's, I think, the the political um, debates that are going on and, and questioning of the uh, the polit potential political bias issues, et cetera, et cetera, that, that feels unique and in some ways it is. But the concerns around intelligence community access to growing amounts of digital data, what 702 allows, are the compliance mechanisms enough? Can the intelligence community be transparent enough to gain trust, not only with the American people, but also with our partners around the world? Those are questions that we've been dealing with for quite a while. Uh, there was a fellow named Snowden who, who, who caused a great firestorm and a crisis of confidence that felt existential at the time. And the, the IC got through it through a combination of things. There were real reforms. Now, some people will claim those reforms didn't go far enough. But I, from the inside, they felt very real to us. There were real changes to how, the, uh, to how these authorities were being used. And there was a huge push on transparency. And that push continues to this day. So I think on the traditional, the traditional, the, 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 the perennial issues of do we trust the IC to be properly carrying out the authorities, our compliance mechanisms, our oversight mechanisms, the transparency work has been geared to that. So I, I still have faith that the, that the IC can respond to those issues. So what, it, what it's, you know, we have all of these compliance reports, we have all of these um, uh, training and rules and the rules can be further clarified and they can be uh, strengthened and the oversight institutions can be strengthened and people can get more uh, personnel, et cetera, to do this better. We can we can do another push on transparency, which we know that we in, that, that is happening and that has to continue to happen. So I I feel like all of those things can um, can continue to carry us through the moment. What is uniquely different, I think, right now is the level of distrust and debate that's coming to a, to the IC from, in particular, Congress. And um, it's very hard to gain the trust of the people if you have very influential. Uh, voices on the Hill um, undermining that trust. I'm not, I don't mean that, I, you know, just sort of uh, criticizing and, and raising concerns. And so in my view, the way to get through this is a package of reforms that addresses some of these issues and making sure that with those reforms, we, uh, the, the, the folks on the Hill that have been expressing these concerns can feel confident that with those changes, we can move forward because undermining the trust in the IC is not good for national security, not good for anybody. I don't think any of us wants that, right? So we need uh, a an empowered, uh, trans as transparent as we can, as rights protective as we as, as it can, uh, I see that is working to protect the nation's security. So I hope, um, I know that everybody shares that view and we just need the right set of uh, changes to get, every, uh, to get the key people on board with that. So Mary, um, as you know, um... Part of the issue is Congress has been holding a number of hearings uh, in which they are calling many of our friends. It's it's almost a law employment act given the amount of attorneys that are either being called or then representing those individuals. But the amount of um, divisiveness and polarization that Alex is alluding to and the fact that in the heartland, this is what they see. We're, this is a very inside the beltway discussion. We understand Woods 
they never had the opportunity to meet David Margolis, did not understand. Uh, though I, we did agree that if there is a David Margolis position, there will be a dress code for that particular individual going forward for anyone who ever saw David. But I think the, the question is, how do we deal with that skepticism? Because the IC, the Bureau, Maine Justice has not been good in going out and campaigning and articulating their sort of role that you believe so deeply for these dedicated public servants. So do you have a, a solution for the campaign to get the America to believe that all of the individuals are have the integrity of uh, Alex, yourself, and Stuart? And when I was there, I never thought I would accuse me of that. So like, what, what should, how should they engage? What would be your recommendation for engagement for the people? That's so interesting because you're right, the department, you know, and Merrick Garland has said this many times, right? We speak through our pleadings, right? Yeah. We speak through what we file in court. Although even Merrick Garland has seen in these last few years that there are times to have a press conference. They're usually short um, uh, and, and address a limited scope of topics. But I think it's really because of transparency, what Alex said, that he's He's thought, you know, there are times when he needs to speak or more recently, Jack, Jack Smith needs to speak. Um, so but but generally speaking, the department, I think, doesn't feel like it it should be going out on some sort of campaign um, to restore its own integrity. And I think they also think right now in this climate, if they were going to have that kind of a campaign, it would it would frankly just be twisted by those on the Hill who want to use that as an, yet another sort of, you know, means of uh, saying that the department has become weaponized. I think that is part of the role for formers um, across the political spectrum. I mean, I never throughout my entire career ever said anything to anyone about my own political, uh, well, I didn't really have a party affiliation, but never talked about that. Nobody I knew talked about that. And so I think we talk about having formers from both Republicans and Democrats, but I would also just say formers, careers, career officials who never uh, had to be, you know, weren't a political appointee, weren't associated with any particular party. Sometimes I will get introduced as a former Obama official and I say, you know what, I stayed until May of 2017. I worked in the Trump administration too. I also worked in the Bush administration and the Clinton administration. You know, we can keep going back and back. And many of us did that. And I started when I was 12, by the way. So, um, so I do think it is important. I think there's a role for all of us who who had those career positions, who lived it, who were in there to try to reestablish some of that integrity. Um, but I also think what what members of Congress, not everybody, but members of Congress are doing right now is just shameful. Um, you know, you, you don't like a result. So you're, you're going to say that the department is weaponized. And that is even when, and here I'm going to get, you know, to the value of bipartisanship, that is even when former attorneys general and former high level officials, judges, Judge Michael Ludig, Bill Barr have come out and said, you know, this most recent indictment related to Mar-a-Lago, you know, based on the allegations in the indictment is, is a righteous indictment that would have been brought by attorneys general of both parties. Yet you wouldn't, you wouldn't get a sense of that at all from uh, some of the rhetoric on Capitol Hill. And I, I think it's, it's shameful. It's a disservice to their constituents. It's a disservice to the country because they are undermining institutions that we rely on. And if we're going to retain this democracy, we're going to have to have these types of institutions um, and, and restore some, some faith in them. And so 
Um, I keep, you know, waiting for the day when there's just the lines are enough lines on Capitol Hill are going to be crossed that the body, both Republicans and Democrats, um, say enough, enough of us just denigrating constantly our institutions. We need to come together for the betterment. But now I'm going well beyond national security, so I'll stop. <laughs> well, I'll let Stuart respond. Um, Stuart, I mean, um, how? what's your reaction to the sense that were there legitimate criticisms, because you like to go to the hard example of the page indictment, but moving away from that particular hard case, which there was clearly a demonstration of the failure of the system. What is your sense about going forward? How, if, if Mary and Alex are right, that if you do have these individuals continually framing the political discussion in a way that undermines any sensibility of the integrity of the institutions, uh, where will we end up? What would be the Baker solution to go forward that we feel comfortable with? So I, I, I think there's a limit we all have views about who's a responsible politician and who's not, but there's a limit to how far that can take you. You can't blame politicians for doing what is politically popular, and they are doing what is politically popular. Um, and if if what they're doing is politically popular, it's because the perception of a very substantial part of the country is consistent with what they're saying. So we 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 have to just recognize that it's that's the perception we have to overcome. We're not going to get help from politicians, but they aren't going to make it uh, worse, probably, uh, if the, the agencies are on the right course. I, here's my guess about how this works. Uh, there are institutions that are always crosswise with Congress um, at, at a period in time. DHS used to be uh, the uh, whipping boy. Back in the uh, 70s, it was the intelligence community. Uh, uh, everybody, NSA has, you know, was beaten up after uh, Snowden. Um, and to get through that, there is still a, a reservoir of assumption that you know we have to do the things these agencies are doing. We have to do them well. Uh, no one wants to completely give up on intelligence or law enforcement, uh, but they they feel that those agencies have really stepped in it and need to be paying a price. And so we have to find a way to actually demonstrably make those agencies pay a price for whether it was letting the perception grow or letting the reality grow uh, uh, of politicization. Uh, and so my uh, my effort has been kind of a twofer. I'd like to see 702 renewed. And I would be happy if the price for renewing 702 was to take all of these concerns, particularly on the right, about the way the intelligence community and the FBI have uh, uh, made missteps and write reforms that require changes at those agencies. I think we can come up with a lot of reforms that will not interfere with our ability to do the job that those agencies were set up to do to serve national security. Uh, uh, I, they're going to hurt, but 
that's part of the the pro, part of what we have to do. It it has to sting for people in the rest of the country to say, "Wow, okay, they've learned their lesson." I hope from this and. It, it, once we get through that, we implement the reforms, just as with the uh, uh, the church committee reforms, people started saying, okay, we've got a new set of procedures, and maybe we can trust these guys. And in fact, uh, the intelligence community got 40 or 50 years of trust out of the uh, church reforms. So I, I do think... We really need to be listening. I will say this. I know there will be people who scoff. We need to listen hard to Jim Jordan and the things that he is saying about weaponization and asking, well, what could we do to make sure that those concerns can't be raised again because the procedures have been changed? Uh, and, right. and that would be my suggestion. Let's come up with a, a package of reforms and pass them at the same time that we renew 702. So, Mary, I know you have a hard stop at five and the hour has flown by, but I'll give you a quick response and I'll let Alex uh, sum up. But do you agree with um, uh, Stuart? We need a pound of flesh from the from the communities in order to legitimize going forward with some sense of respectability. I guess I would just characterize it different. I don't think they need to feel pain in that, in the sense that I just, that that's just not good, to me a useful uh, kind of analogy, but I, but I do think that I, I would agree that a package of reforms could have some impact. Do I think it's going to ch change what Jim Jordan says? No, I really don't because I think Jim Jordan is purely out for political purposes. And I actually disagree that the substantial body of uh, the population um, wants to hear this. I think there's plenty and plenty of surveys that show most Americans would prefer there to be far less polarization. There is a base that it's playing to. There's no question about it. But I do think most of us would like to get back to a place where we do have respect for rule of law and norms, where everything on Capitol Hill does not become a rock fight um, and where, you know, we can uh, actually have dinner with our families at Thanksgiving and with our friends in the neighborhood without it becoming a disaster. Um, I, I firmly believe that. So, um, you know, uh, one start, at least for this little piece we're talking about today, I would agree, you know, some some sort of meaningful reforms and statements about that I think could be useful. And with that, I'll have to sign off. But I, I really so appreciate much, being invited today. Thanks. So. We all you always be invited. And I have a sense that we may have to have more of these given the response <laughs> to the Q&A. Alex, I'll Thank let you. you have the last word. Okay, great. Well, I've been uh, told that I'm an institutionalist, and I, I'll embrace that. I do think this is a good opportunity, a good time, as and, and I'll agree with Stuart, you know, coming up with a group, a set of reforms. Uh, in my view, there's nothing, you know, I feel like there's nothing I can do about the political debate on the Hill at the moment and how it's impacting, uh, how it's being used. But I would, I would take this opportunity to strengthen institutions, to figure out what are the oversight mechanisms that we need to put in place for this kind of an issue. I think from an intelligence community perspective, I welcome any uh, any efforts to ensure the independence and objectivity of intelligence professionals so that they're not subject to political, uh, you know, claims of political bias from either party. Like, you know, regardless of who's in power, regardless of who has the floor on, on the Hill, the intelligence communities should be able to continue to do their job to protect the country in a way that protects people's privacy and civil liberties at the same time. So I feel like that's really important. The other thing I'll say is on trust. You know, this is all about trust. Trust has two pieces to it. Trust in someone's character, 
which is what we've been talking about, the character of the FBI and the IC. Are they, do they have integrity? Are they do following the rules? Are they doing what they say? But also trust in their competence. Are they doing a good job? Are they using these tools in, a, in, in the right way to have, to in fact protect the nation's security? And I think that we've gotten a lot better on the character front in terms of transparency and explaining that. And we, we have a lot of effort to sort of figure out how to fine tune system and make additional reforms. On the competence side, in terms of, of how valuable these authorities are and what we can do, I still think we have more work to be that, that can be done there. I understand it's super hard because intelligence community successes are the most closely guarded secrets, but I do feel you have to go hand in hand uh, that we're going to use these authorities correctly and that they are valuable and we need to have them in order to protect the country. Great, Alex. Thank you. Uh, first, let me thank the panelists. There's been a lot of fascinating Q&A, some feeling that we've been focused too much on the Bureau as being the, the culprit versus the IC or, or the impartiality Department of Justice. But I think the way to do it is say that given this nature of the conversation, I think, Holly, we may need to have another one of these events in the next couple of weeks in order for us to look at the questions and help tailor a discussion that would address them. But I just want to thank you all uh, on the panel. I want to thank all the questioners and listeners. You've all stayed with us for almost the entire hour. And I would say that it's important that we have a resolution because so much is at stake. If we cannot trust the Bureau, the IC, and the Department of Justice as the foundations of our democracy, we're in a world of hurt. So thanks so much, and we'll be back. All the best. The views expressed on national security law today have not been approved by the House of Delegates or the Board of Governors of the American Bar Association, and this recording should not be construed as representing ABA policies.